The following message is from Ascension Church of Phoenix, your home in the heart of the city. For more information, please visit us online at ascensionphx.org or join us for worship on Sunday. Our scripture reading today is from Acts 5, 27-42. And when they had brought them... They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up, in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for this plan or this undertaking, if this plan or undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to you as well. My name is Eric. I'm the assistant pastor here at Ascension Church. We're so glad you've joined us for worship today. In many ways, what we're doing here as we worship together is what the church has already been doing for hundreds of years. And in some other expressions, we have a unique we're a desire to be in this city, to enjoy life together and the goodness of God. And so I hope if you're visiting for the first time, you'll catch that, you'll be interested in that, you'll like to come alongside us and, and walk with us. We have been in a series uh, in the book of Acts, and you just heard the scripture read from this chapter in Acts. We're looking at a passage that directly speaks to the subject of our obedience to God. You just heard it read. In fact, verse 29 may still be ringing in your ears when Peter says, 
We must obey God rather than men. And, and if you were here last week, and this start in verse 27 seems like we might have jumped into the middle of a story, well, we did. Acts is a long book. We've passed over 15 verses here. You can check them out on your own. In fact, funny enough, our children's curriculum today, ministry, is this story from Acts 5. Our children are going through Acts 2, so if you have a child in one of those classes, they can fill you in on how we got here to verse 27. But Peter and the apostles have already been before this council in the previous chapter for healing a man. And as they are facing this council, brought up on charges here, probably looking at a beating, which they do get, maybe even death, they demonstrate a radical obedience, even in the face of these consequences, a resilient obedience. Where does this obedience to God come from? Now, granted, obedience has not been a very attractive word for a long time. I think often when we think in terms of our relationship to God, we like to speak in terms of, I'm following God, or I'm, I'm partnering with God, or, or I'm serving God, and all these terms are appropriate in different ways, in different times, but they all tick up the elevation of what we're doing. There's a, there's a sting a little bit to obedience, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but here Peter says, can't get around it, I must obey God. We must obey God. It just, just seems so old-fashioned. Well, he is right. We're going to look further at this passage and the obedience that we're called to as Christians. Let me pray for us. Lord, your word has been given to us. It is clear and yet complex. It gives simple guidance, and yet there's a depth to it that we simply cannot extensively probe or find out. Would you lead us, Lord, through your word? Let it speak to our hearts this morning, not just our minds, not just staying kind of at a, an information level, but would it dive deeper, Lord, into the heart which you call to yourself, which you transform. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, a, a, a favorite book in our home, it's old, but it's new to us, a children's book is called um, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus by Mo Willems. On the first page of the, the book, you open it up, and there is a bus driver and a pigeon, a cartoon bus driver and a pigeon, and the bus driver says to the reader, hi, I've got to step away for a minute. Could you watch things for me? Oh, and remember, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. And the rest of the book is page after page of an escalated, humorous begging from this pigeon to be allowed to drive the bus, to which you can say no to every page. So the pigeon says, please let me drive the bus. No, I'll tell you what, I'll just steer. No, I have dreams too, you know. No, and on and on and on. And finally, the book ends with the bus driver returning. I'm back. You didn't let the pigeon drive the bus, did you? Great, thanks a lot. And the pigeon kind of slumps over as he drives away in the bus. Funny book, fun to read again and again and again. I am ready to see the pigeon drive the bus at this point. <laughs> it, 
it strikes me reading that book that there's something in there to which it speaks too often how I have related to God in my attempts to obey him. I think a lot of us can relate to this. I know especially, I know, I know from my own life I can. You might, you might broaden the analogy of the book out a little bit and say, God is like a bus driver who says to each one of us, hi, I've got to step away for a minute. Would you watch things for me? And remember, obey me. And then he leaves. And we feel this distance between God and us as we are exposed page after page, so to speak, day after day to various temptations, to longings, desires, aches within us. And we feel as though what God has asked us to do is is to stand in place and say, no, no, no. And then the picture is when God comes back into my life in some way, that, that experience or that feeling, he'll say, I'm back. You didn't disobey, did you? Thanks a lot. A couple things stand out for me if this is sort of our framework. If we hear the word obey, and this is sort of our framework for it, is that, is that often we, we, we think that, that God is more interested in what we don't do. That his, that his priority is on making sure certain things don't happen. The other thing that stands out for me from this is that, that God feels very distant and remote, detached from our daily lives. And this sort of works for a while while we're children, this sort of understanding, but it runs out fast. And I don't know what popped into your head this morning when you heard, we must obey God, and you thought, ooh, Oh, yeah. And then I got up here and said, this sermon's about obedience. Oh. Because for a lot of us, we maybe had a a parent or a teacher or another influential adult in our life or maybe a a significant other. And and sometimes we might get that sense of, 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 of both distance and a priority on us not doing the wrong thing. And over time, the lesson that we've learned is obedience is how I get them to like me. Obedience is how I know our relationship is okay. I I can obey just to kind of keep a low profile and stay out of the way. Maybe obedience is a bargaining chip for us with God. I can can ask him. I can pray for things. He's more likely to get if I've been good, more likely to give them to me if I've been good. I want to say to you this morning that this passage that we're looking at it, it, has, it has a radically different understanding of obedience than that. The scriptures teach us this morning, and all across of them, that God did not demand our obedience to save us and love us, but saved us out of love and called us to obey him. God is not only interested in what we will abstain for his sake, and he is not out here to negotiate obedience with us. So here's the main, main idea that I want to preach from this passage this morning that we see in Peter's speech and his appeal to this council and all throughout this scene. When we see that God has forgiven the unforgivable, we are compelled to obey him. 
We are compelled to obey him when we see that God has forgiven the unforgivable, that God, by his forgiving what we thought was unforgivable, what could never be put away, was the height of our shame and our, something we just want to block out, his forgiveness of this. This is what compels an earnest, joyful obedience. And this is so much in contrast to how often obedience feels like the thing that it's driving the wedge between us and God. It feels like the thing that either neglected too long, where is God, is he distant, or, or if I didn't do this or that or did that, then, then he's distant and far from me. Absolutely, this, the scriptures this morning paint a very different image of the priority of obedience. And so three points this morning as we look at this passage. Here's the first point. We must obey God. That's the first point. We must obey God. Here we are with Peter and the apostles who are back in front of the council again of religious leaders as they were in the previous chapter, as these words even insinuate. And when they brought them, verse 27, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So Peter and the apostles have been disobedient. They have, they have disobeyed the council. Moreover, they're charged with being in contempt of court here because they've gone along their way and not done what was asked of them, even required by them of the authorities. They, even as they are risking their lives to be obedient to God. And Peter answers, we must obey God rather than men. Now, this is a very similar answer that Peter gave earlier, the first time there before the council, when he said, I think very pointedly, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you judge. But we cannot speak of what we have, we can only speak of what we have seen and heard. And so we have a back and forth between Peter and the council here. The council saying, you owe us this obedience. This is who we are. These are the authorities. And Peter is saying, you can judge for yourselves. We need to listen to God. We're obeying God. It's mistaken for a power play by the council. It's not a power play. Peter is simply walking in obedience to God. But here is the other accusation this time that the council brings that they did not bring up last time. Here's another accusation. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Speaking of Jesus. Now, to this statement, Peter and the apostles do not back down, but they boldly affirm, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, who you killed by hanging on a tree. Plainly stated, question is, are the apostles right here? Are they right to really accuse this council of literally killing Jesus? Well, yes. These men literally killed Jesus. Matthew records, ironically, of course, that this council was present. This is not too long after Jesus' death and resurrection. But Matthew records, ironically, that this council even said, his blood be upon us and our children. An account where Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who we speak about in the Apostles' Creed, saw that he was gaining nothing, but that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And now, several months later, the same council is accusing the apostles of what they themselves cried out for. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What we see here is that as the early church begins and builds momentum and moves forward, that these leaders are now in a very precarious position. 
They're supposed to be leading people to God, but are now facing the reality that they themselves have killed God's son. But what is so fascinating about this moment is, even in the heat of this council, Peter is actually calling them to repent. Listen to Peter's words again. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, who you killed. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior, giving, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So yes, there is a way to hear this. We must obey God, in verse 29, as an invitation to the council itself. In other words, Peter's response to the council when they say, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? He says, well, it's factually true that you killed Jesus. So in that sense, yes. But he himself, Christ, has risen to offer forgiveness to even you. Later, Gamaliel will call them men of Israel. Israel, this is Israel, repentance to Israel. John uh, Chrysostom, church father, has a wonderful quote on this verse here. He says, notice how every time they mention the crime, they add the mention of forgiveness, showing that what has been done was worthy of death, but what has been given was offered as if to benefactors. How else could anyone persuade them? The council says, you've been preaching Christ, you've been telling people that we're criminals, and Peter says, yes, but you're not criminals beyond benefiting from the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins that have come from this death. Christ's exaltation, his ability to give repentance, means that he is, that the, the culpability on these leaders' heads does not need to stay there, but that Christ's blood can be on them in a forgiving sense. And here we see Peter making a bold appeal. We must obey God. The council is, is lost in obeying their position, their power, not taking seriously that what the apostles are speaking to them. And this should be very sobering to us, for this is not a bum group assembled to judge the apostles' claims. These are the, these are the peak religious, some of the peak religious leaders in Israel who are not able to see that they are not obeying God. Moreover, they are opposing him. And so their respond is, to be enraged and want to kill them. That is the subject of our obedience. It must be unto God. Here is second point this morning. We must obey God. It's the action. We must obey God. Even in the heat of this moment, one cool head, at least, steps forward to offer an alternative. Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, has the apostles put outside. And Gamaliel is an important name for this moment, and as he is known historically, not in the least because he's one of the mentors, or a teacher at least, it's said, of the apostle Paul. And, and here, Gamaliel's advice that he gives them can really be broken down in, by two test cases, Theudas and Judas, both men who rose up claiming to be somebody and built a following upon their death, but their movements were dispersed and came to nothing and were scattered. Now, what, what is happening here? Gamaliel is comparing Jesus to these other two leaders, to Theudas or Judas. 
Jesus also rose up. Jesus claimed to be someone, and he built a following, including these apostles who were standing before them. And now, says Gamaliel, just as those movements came to nothing, if this man too was nothing, then this will fizzle out on his own. It's hard to read Gamaliel here if he really sympathizes with the apostles' claims or if he has something to gain by political maneuvering. But whatever his intentions, perhaps God does use him as a word of wisdom here to save the apostles' lives, although the beating, the 39 lashes they would have received is not sparing much. His advice ultimately fails to address the claims and the invitation to repentance from the apostles. He gives them some advice. Let this play out. Either it'll fizzle out on its own, or at the very least, you won't be found to being opposed to God. And there is a great danger on the face of this advice that looks wise, that looks like let's just step back from here. There is actually a danger in this because the only proper response to God is to obey him. Yes, there are other things that play out in our lives with the Lord, but the proper response to God is obedience, not delay, not finding loopholes or negotiating or employing half measures. I see at least two dangers in Gamaliel's advice. The first is that the advice he gives the council seems to think that obedience can start tomorrow. Let's watch things play out. I, too, was looking at St. Augustine's confessions this week, reminded of a prayer, you may know it, a famous prayer of Augustine, where he prays to the Lord, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. He's, he's thinking of how he used to seek the Lord for things he wanted in his life for obedience, but really didn't actually want God to delay the prayer. And this is dangerous in Gamaliel's advice here. Don't need to obey just yet. Let's, let's, let's hold back. Second danger is thinking the obedience will start when more information comes in. Gamaliel wants to watch this play out and see, well, let's just, let's just learn more, let's just study more, let's just watch more before we do the thing that we're being called by God to do. And these are dangers because they fly in the face of what obedience itself is. Obedience, if I could put it in like a, a definition Obedience is always happening. We are always giving our obedience to something. So Gamaliel's call to step back and wait is actually not a, a neutral position. They are giving their obedience. They are giving it to themselves, to their power, to, to, to ignore God, to, to the system that they are currently in and serving. Obedience is always happening, it's, and it's always taking us somewhere always moving in a direction. That does not mean that every time we disobey God, we are ripped from his presence. No, Jesus said, no one can snatch my people, my sheep from my hand. It does mean that obedience has a direction. It moves us somewhere. And so there is no neutral position here, as Galamiel says. Thinking this week about a quote from Tim Keller, where he talks about wisdom. This is in the context of wisdom, but he says, because God created the world, because God is sovereign and in control of history, that means that obedience is always the wise thing to do, no matter the cost. 
And here is Gamaliel standing up, renowned, wise. Other history books talk about his passing, and after his death, the purity of the law was lost. He was hailed, but gives unwise advice because it simply does not act before God as it should, obedience before him. Here is the third point this morning. We must obey God. We must obey God. Going back to verse 29, I think of the word must, and I I know how Peter said it here. You must obey God. Think of Martin Luther, if you studied Reformation history, when he's before his own council and says, here I stand, God help me, I cannot do otherwise, I must. But sometimes, obedience to God does not feel like a, I must, but a, okay, if I must. How do we arrive at the place like these apostles where we too want to obey God? There is a joy, there is a gusto, there's an enthusiasm to seeking to obey him, to do what is wise in light of eternity, no matter the immediate cost. For this is what happens to the apostles. When they, they call them, they beat them, and they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You ever thought, what would it like to, to be in this sort of position, to be on trial for your faith? How would I respond? What would I, what would I do in this moment? It's impossible to know in the hypothetical how any of us would respond. Perhaps we could take comfort in the Apostle Peter himself telling the Lord, I will never fall away from you. To which Jesus responds, you will deny me three times. And now here's Peter again before council, boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. But regardless of the outcome, we long for this desire to obey God that comes from the heart and responds to him. And here is where this comes from. Here is is how a desire to obey God, what this comes from. There's two things we need to see here that Jesus, the leader and Savior, gives. It's right here in Peter's speech. He gives repentance and forgiveness of sins, and he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. These are gifts explicitly stated to the council by the apostles. And it shows that God not only fills us to obedience, he fulfills and empowers our obedience himself. For our first obedience is to obey, to to believe in Christ, to repent and receive forgiveness of sins by faith. That's something given by Christ. That's our first obedience fulfilled in him from first to last. And moving forward, all who have obeyed him receive the Spirit to empower obedience beyond that. There is no radical or resilient obedience that we can muster within ourselves and in our lives that does not come from the Spirit of God or is empowered by him. And this is what the scriptures teach again and again, that people Not that people who obeyed God received his love, but that he would love people to follow him with obedience. You see, this charge made against the council, Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, it can be partially made of all of us as well. Think of the hymn we often sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon 
a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. That hymn, that that great confession teaches us what the scriptures teach, that it was my sin that was a cause, the cause, what greatly contributed to Christ needing to die. And like the council, we both are personally and also corporately guilty of this sin that required the sacrificial atonement of God's Son. But God has forgiven what was unforgivable. unforgivable. Oh, that that would be the, the, the foundation and the motivation of our obedience. Oftentimes, we've lived in a world that has stressed obedience is the way to be loved. Obedience is the way to fly under the radar. Obedience is your bargaining chip with those around you. Jesus did not get any ticky-tacky like that. He came, he loved the world. He came to die for our sins that our response would be obedience empowered in him. The scriptures teach we loved him because he first loved us. And if you love me, you will keep my commands. Love of God is baked in as the foundation to our obedience and response to a heart that must obey God. Can you pray for us and close? Thanks again for listening. To hear more sermons or to access more resources for your walk with Christ, please visit us at ascensionphx.org.